0: So according to verse 3, the author would have us consider Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest we become weary and discouraged in our souls. So here the author is really encouraging us to think deeply about Jesus and the hostility that he underwent. He doesn't want us to, you know, read past the passage to the next one and uh, not really give any thought to what he's trying to get at here. He wants us to take into account the serious nature of what Jesus was confronted with. So he wants us to stop and meditate and think about all of this because what Jesus endured and how he endured it is rather remarkable, okay, it's remarkable. And it's something that to that degree, to that level, that we can never endure. It just cannot happen, it's impossible. We'll discuss that, why that is. But anyway, I want to look at his endurance being remarkable because of who he is, that's the thing really that we can never identify with fully, and because of how he endured the hostility until the very end. So who Jesus is and how he endured the hostility, it, it has to really be understood to some degree before we can grasp what the author's talking about and experience what he intended. Now, if you remember, the author spent 10 long chapters, and rightfully so, exalting the person of Jesus to his audience. 10 chapters. you know, Magnifying his deity, his majesty, his glory, his humanity, his victory, and his supremacy. He just went on and on and on and on. It's glorious. He presented Jesus to us as the Son of God, the object of angelic praise, the creator and sustainer of all creation, the lover of man's soul, and the savior of all who believe. He presented him to us as the one who's worthy of all praise, every affection, with every ounce of adoration belongs to him. He is above all things. And he says, and for him, everything exists. This is really exalting, the person of Jesus. And yet, in his condescending love for those who revile him, he stepped down from his glorious throne, denied himself the rights of divine majesty in order to assume a human body Isaiah 53 says he really took hold of our frailty that he might suffer the plight of humanity. As a man, he was born in poverty. He was hunted by royalty and escaped as a refugee. He was later raised in a city of low reputation where those of no reputation lived. He was a nobody from nowhere. His mother was thought to be a fornicator and he her illegitimate son a lie that was often repeated and thrown in his face. But then the time came to execute his father's mission, to save his people from their sins. The sinless son of God was sent to be the savior of sinful men. Now, something about all of this should not be understated or misunderstood. Jesus Christ came to suffer for the sins of those who sinned against him. That's what he did. It is he that is offended by our sin. When we sin, we sin against him. We violate his holiness, his righteousness. So when he came, he was penalized for the offenses that were committed against him. Imagine that. It's like me being fined for you trespassing on my property, or me being penalized for what you stole from me. Jesus was crucified for the crimes that we committed against him. Yeah. He's not a third party. He didn't pay our fine after we stole something from someone else. He paid for the crimes we committed against him. Yeah. There's more to this. He allowed us, the offenders, the sinners, the criminals, to be his judge, jury, and executioners. There's a lot more to think about this. We did that to him. The audacity of humanity. So this is the nature of the hostility mentioned in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3 that Christ endured. He wasn't some sinner who encountered his just desert. He was entirely innocent, bearing the sins of others and receiving their just desert. You know, once arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, he was brought before Caiaphas and his kangaroo court. Caiaphas, of course, ruled as high priest from the shadows. He was a greedy and vindictive man who cared nothing for the people or the law of God. And under his charge, the court immediately sought for false testimony against Jesus, and many came forward lying about him and distorting his words, his teachings. Then Caiaphas became very direct, and he was pressing Jesus, saying, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, You said it. You said it. And then he continued, he said, Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In saying all this in response to Caiaphas, he affirmed everything that Caiaphas was inquiring about. Everything. He is the Son of God, but he also identified himself as the Son of Man when he quotes from Daniel chapter 7, to whom in that chapter all earthly dominion and authority would be granted and to whom all people's nations and languages would serve. So Jesus affirmed what Caiaphas said, and if that much is true, there's a whole lot more that goes with it. If I am all of these things, then it would unravel everything in the Old Testament that talks about me. If he is indeed the son of man from Daniel seven, he would one day come on the clouds and rule over the earth just as Daniel predicted. Jesus was saying to Caiaphas that Caiaphas would one day stand where Jesus was standing and that Jesus would sit where Caiaphas was sitting. And on that day, judgment would be just. Yeah. But Jesus stood there to be judged for the sins of the people. When he returns, he'll be the judge of all. At the mention of this, Caiaphas tears his clothes and then the council agreed that Jesus should be condemned. And then after passing sentence, they blasphemed him, they spat in his face, and then they blindfolded him and beat him, the whole while tormenting him, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who was it that struck you? To which he made no reply. As Isaiah the prophet said, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter." And as a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, verse 7. The next morning, he brought Jesus before Annas. He was the Roman appointed high priest and the rest of the Jewish council, where he was condemned again. But not having authority to, exer- uh, to exercise capital punishment, the Jews brought Jesus before Pilate, the-, the Roman governor, and began to lie about Jesus and accuse him of insurrection. He's starting a rebellion. And then when Pilate heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he tried to pass Jesus off to Herod, the Tetrarch, who happened to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. So the chief priests made the same accusations against Jesus to Herod. And so Herod, with his men of war, they treated Jesus with contempt and they mocked him. And uh, in order to mock him more, they put a royal robe on him and then sent him back to Pilate as a king. And though Pilate could find no charge against Jesus worthy of punishment, he buckled to the manipulation of the Jews and turned him over to be crucified, but not before Pilate's soldiers had their fun. The whole garrison, they gathered around Jesus, they stripped him naked to humiliate him, and then they scourged him, and they dressed him also as a king, and they twisted a crown of thorns around his head, and they mocked him, and and they struck him in the face with a reed. You know, if Jesus had not gone to the cross, he would have almost certainly died from the scourging that he endured. If not directly from the scourging, he would have perished from the infection. And then, after being led to Calvary, they stripped him naked again. They gambled for his clothing. And as you know, they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross where he hung until that afternoon. And not being satisfied with any of this, the, the soldiers and the Jews stood around and they mocked him until his last breath. Shame. It says he despised it to the very end. I think it's now that we can at least begin to consider Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. That's what the author is telling us to do. I want you to consider him who endured this level of hostility. The high king of heaven, the innocent one, volunteered to endure that level of hostility in order to redeem those who sinned against him. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? Now you understand why we couldn't possibly uh, enter into the kind of suffering that he did. It is impossible for us. But we want to scratch the surface regarding who Jesus is and what He endured. Also, we want to talk about how he endured it. In, in the midst of his suffering, he did not revile those who reviled him or threaten those who caused his suffering. But Peter, 1 Peter 2:23 says that he committed himself to his Father, who judges righteously. That's a tough commitment, isn't it? It's a tough commitment. But more than this, as he was there on the cross, Jesus pleaded with his father you know, not to uh, annihilate those who mistreated him, but to forgive them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, Luke 23, 34. But I gotta tell you, from my perspective, it sure seemed like they knew what they were doing. But Jesus appealed to his father to forgive, and he submitted to his father's redemptive will and endured the worst kind of hostility to the very end. This was the mission for which he came and that's how he accomplished it. That is a commitment. The prince of life, the spotless son of God who sought our forgiveness, took upon himself our guilt and then suffered the just penalty for our sins, never reviling or cursing those who cursed him, but he rather loved us with his dying breath. Yeah. Now we can consider Jesus who endured hostility from us and for us. And the author says, so that you do not become weary and discouraged in your souls. Yeah. The point that the author is trying to make is that if Jesus would subject himself to such misery and humiliation for our salvation can we not endure temporal suffering which one day will be forgotten and eclipsed by his glory all of our suffering will be exchanged for joy amen it will be exchanged for joy look at verse 4 he says to them to his audience, says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. You have not yet struggled against or resisted bloodshed, striving against sin. It's interesting now, you know, the author shifts from comparing our life of faith with a marathon to that of the boxing, the boxing match, just with the one word resisted. Yeah. It's not the sort of boxing match where the competitors are wearing padded gloves, Uh, These are bare fisted boxers holding a weapon. Boy, I don't want to see that on TV. (laughs) That would be messed up. We're probably getting there, though, with uh, what's that new, the newer uh, thing that's on TV? Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. So we're not talking about personal sin, but the believer's struggle with persecution, or in more general, just suffering, okay? And so the author's point, of course, the hostility that Jesus faced in the boxing ring, as it were, led to his death. But none of these Hebrew Christians have yet been persecuted to the point of their blood being shed. Yeah. Now, mind you, bloodshed uh, does not refer to an injury that can be recovered from. Bloodshed means death. And he says, no one in this community of believers have died as a result of their persecution, It may be in the future, but it hasn't yet occurred, just as it has not yet occurred among us. The author is saying that their struggle pales in comparison to Jesus's, and so they must still have some fight left in them, some fight left in them. And the truth be told, our struggle pales in comparison to the struggles of these Jewish believers, because we're not yet... We haven't yet been beaten and imprisoned and had our property confiscated because we're Christians. Amen? So I think the author would say to us, then you still got some fight left in you. Okay? You still have some fight. If he expected these people to not grow weary and discouraged in the midst of their struggles, he would insist the same for you and I. You've got some fight left in you. There's no excuse for them. He would provide no excuse for us. And we love excuses. We do. Yeah. Now, it's certainly, he doesn't say it in an uncaring way because the author himself, he's endured greater suffering than his audience. And so he can say, you must have some fight left in you. Okay? You must. You know, like Paul, who was ostracized by his own people, uh, frequently beaten. Uh, and at one time, contrary to the law of God, he was whipped 195 times by his own people. They justified it by uh, whipping him 39 times, you know, minus one from the maximum, and then they would start over to 39 and then start over, and they did that five times, just so they could take out their revenge on Paul. He was stoned in Derby, unlawfully beaten with rods in Philippi, and then unlawfully imprisoned there. He was run out of multiple towns. Uh, His life conspired against at every turn, shipwrecked multiple times, falsely accused by his own people in court who were calling for his blood. All of which Paul refers to as our momentary light affliction. (laughs) Thank you, Paul. Momentary light affliction. If he were to compare his sufferings with spicy food, on a scale from 1 to 10, it would be a 2. How would you rate it? (laughs) He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. A couple verses he could have just left out of the Bible. Momentary light affliction. If that was momentary light affliction for Paul, he would say, you've got some fight left in you. Pick your head up, dust yourself off. Yeah, it was all moderate and mild, short-lived. Yeah, amazing how time flies when you're having fun. (laughs) Yeah. Notice where Paul was looking. He was always looking beyond his suffering to the glory on the horizon, just as Jesus taught him. Just as the author of Hebrews is teaching us you know, when Paul was in prison, his, he said, my heart is essentially at a crossroads. He told the Philippians, he said, for I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you, Philippians 1, 23 through 24. What he was saying was, because he knew what his, his sentence would be, it would be beheading. He says, it's far better to be beheaded and go be with Jesus than it is to stay in this place. Because he knew what was beyond beheading. It's the only way he could say that. Jesus is on the other side of my death. He's at the end of my suffering. He had his eyes someplace else. He was looking to Jesus. And then, as we see in Philippians 3.10, he says, I look forward to sharing in the suffering that Jesus endured. In another place, he wanted to fill up in his body the suffering of Christ. He wouldn't be content with an intellectual understanding of what Jesus endured. Paul wanted to know for himself what it was to suffer for the cause of Jesus' father. Because if it was for the father's cause, he would not get discouraged and he would enjoy the fruit of it. He told the Corinthians that we do not lose heart When our affliction is found within our vision of Christ and his cause. If you suffer because of your own sin, it will be disheartening. If you suffer for your own cause, it will be unfulfilling. But if you suffer for the cause of Christ, you can rejoice as Peter did when he got beat by the Sanhedrin. He rejoiced that he was counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Yeah. Now, real quick. Uh, Notice that verse 3 says that Jesus endured hostility against sinners, but verse 4 says that these people were striving against sin as if to mean personal sin. But if the author doesn't mean the same thing in both verses, it weakens the comparison and we really lose uh, the context. Of course, you know, Jesus, he never struggled with personal sin, so the author cannot be comparing the, the struggle that we both have with personal sin. But these Christians were were suffering persecution from sinners, just as Jesus did. That's the comparison. And this is settled by the context as well. In chapter 10, the author pointed out the persecution that these believers were facing from unbelievers in the community, that is, from sinners. And then in chapter 11, he makes reference to Old Testament believers who were persecuted but overcame by faith. He makes no mention of the Old Testament believers' struggle with personal sin, now, of course, they did struggle with sin. It's not what he's talking about. And then here, the author specifically references what Jesus endured from sinners. And textually then, we're not talking about their personal struggle with sin, but with their suffering that they face from sinners. To run with endurance, he said earlier, yes, you need to set aside every weight and every sin that easily entangles you But it's because of persecution that they need to consider Jesus' example of enduring hostility from sinners so they could be as he was, as they endured similar things. Besides, I think it's a bit of a stretch to struggle against personal sin to the point of bloodshed, because suicide isn't in the context, is it? It's the only sin I can really think of. Sticking with the context, the following section in verse 5 through 11, you know, continues with this idea of suffering, and so I want to get into this a little bit today. Uh, Ultimately, I want to examine three things from the passage. I want to talk about the necessity of suffering, why you and I need it, okay? The comfort from suffering, if that's not an oxymoron. And uh, the fruit of suffering. But today we only have time to consider the necessity of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry that goes over the microphone. I need a cough switch on my click. Yeah. So not only have these believers not resisted to the point of bloodshed from persecution, verse five says that they have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to them as sons. Now real quick, some of us have not forgotten this because some of us have never learned this. You haven't haven't learned this. He says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he loves. Now, real quick, the author is quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 through 12, but he's quoting from the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. The Hebrew text says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son, in whom he delights." Something I'm trying to currently convince my children of. (laughs) The author attributes the persecution they're facing with the chastening of the Lord. Did you hear that? He says that what you are facing is the chastening of the Lord. He's not saying the Lord is persecuting them or that the Lord is responsible for their mistreatment. You know, those who are persecuting them, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, they will be held responsible for that. The author is saying that God their father is chastening them by means of their persecution. He's using persecution for his own good purposes. Now, I think it's easy for us at this point to examine our pain and then start asking the wrong questions because we can ask the wrong questions. And then it demands an answer that is really not suitable, okay? We can ask things like, why me? Why do I deserve this? How is that fair? I think there are more mature questions that could be, we could be asking, especially in light of the fact that God the Father used the same method with Jesus, the same method. Jesus was not chastened for any personal sin by way of persecution because there was no sin to chasten him for, but he was nonetheless subjected to suffering by his Father's will. It was by way of his Father's wisdom that Jesus was turned over to suffering. The author says, for it was fitting for Jesus, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's Hebrews 2.10. Hebrews 2.10. Now we began by saying at the introduction of chapter 12 that the scope of this chapter is the perfection of the believer. Isn't that what we said? Yeah. Well, now we've come to a place where God brings our experience in line with Jesus's for the same purpose. He's explaining the purpose behind suffering. We've come to the method of God for the perfecting of the believer, which is suffering, and if suffering was necessary for the perfecting of Christ, how much more does that necessity fall upon you and I? Yeah. Now, it's not that we deserve this kind of suffering. That's not the point. We deserve far worse. This is about our need for suffering if we are to be perfected in the way that God intends. It was needful. The Father said, for Christ to suffer in order to be perfected for the task of pioneering our salvation. It was needful. And it is needful for us to endure suffering if we are to be like Jesus, which is the Father's great intention for us. And therefore, the believer will not and cannot avoid suffering. You can't. And how many have avoided it anyway? Oh, good. <laughs> and remember, it's, it's, it's light and momentary. Amen? So instead of feeling sorry for ourselves or groveling in self-pity, we should actually be thankful. It's like thanking your dad after he gives you a spanking. <laughs> Shouldn't they? Doesn't the scripture say that it's good for the child? It delivers them from foolishness. It's good for them. Paul said, give thanks in all things and for all things. Why? Because our God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Now, of course, from where we're standing, we cannot see what the results will be of what we're experiencing, but we have the promise that God is orchestrating it for good, and therefore, good will come of it. It will. So thank him for it in advance. Because if you don't, you will grow weary and discouraged. You will. Let me just sample with you for a moment the necessity of suffering in a, a practical sense. And then I'll, I'll kick you out of here. Without suffering, we, we do not share in the plight of humanity. And without identifying with the rest of humanity, we're not likely to sympathize and empathize with them for their good. We would lack perfection toward man. Paul says that it is by suffering that we experience God's goodness. His comfort is never extended to us without it, without suffering. So without suffering, we miss out on experiencing an entire attribute of God. Not something I want to miss out on. But in experiencing his goodness, we then... Enjoy perfection toward God. You know, Shanny and I have never experienced the comfort of God more than when we lost Josiah. And we haven't experienced it since, but it was abundant and it was fulfilling and we thank him for it. And to be honest, I want to experience it again just without the suffering. But it's not possible, it's not possible. Again, Paul says that once we've been comforted by God, we are then God's instrument that he uses to comfort others. By this, we experience perfection toward God and man, an instrument in the hand of God and a comfort to our fellow man. We can pass on with confidence the promise of God's comfort because we've been comforted by him. We've experienced that faithfulness of God. It's through suffering that we're able to endure more struggle And Paul says it's by perseverance that we learn character, and it's by character that we learn hope. That's the perfection that God is working in us through struggle. Now, patience and hope, if they come by means of struggle, I guess I don't want struggle, but I do want hope and perseverance. And those are two attributes that I want my children to witness in me and everybody else that observes my conduct when I'm in pain. I want to be perfect toward my fellow man and for the glory of God, Suffering then is necessary if we are to become what God desires, which is the perfect likeness of his son who suffered. And then without God's perspective and purpose for suffering, suffering, we will lose heart and grow weary. But if we look to him and we consider Jesus, we'll thrive in spite of it, now, it won't take away our pain, but it will give purpose to our pain and it will fill us with hope. I guarantee. Okay, Let's pray. Okay, Go ahead and stand if you would. Next week we'll look at the comfort of suffering and we'll look at the fruit. All right. Well, Father, I would pray that in light of the context of suffering, that you would expand our vision of Christ, that we would be able to look to him, and Lord, with with sober minds, we'd be able to consider all that he is, all that he endured, and how he endured it, Lord, so that we are better prepared for suffering ourselves, And Lord, that we could understand suffering better, knowing that you pour purpose into suffering so that it's not meaningless, and you use it for your intended end. Lord, that you might perfect us, that you might bring us to completion in our faith, more like the image of Christ. Lord, help us to understand more. Lord, I pray for those that are in the midst of suffering now that you would assure their hearts that you would encourage them and that they would have great confidence, Lord, in your promises. And Lord, help, I pray, for all of us as a congregation that at the end of the day, when suffering has subsided, that that fruit would show itself and that we could enjoy that. Lord, we love you and we thank you. I pray that you'd be with my church family this week, Lord, that you would lavish your grace upon them and just be with them. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, love you guys. Lord bless you.